Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Glad to be back with you all. Coming up on today's program, some school districts have been back in class for a few weeks. And for others, this week begins the new school year. And due to some new Georgia laws, educators are faced with what some call vague provisions on how and what to teach. That's just one of the back-to-school topics WABE education reporter Martha Dalton will discuss in just a few moments and later in the program. I'm good right now. Um, we finally have gotten just for Ahmad again. I know that Ahmad is pleased with the work that we've done as a community. Have we held together as a family? I know he's in heaven. He's pleased. And with that being said, I'm pleased as well. The three men charged with federal hate crimes for killing Ahmad Arbery in southeast Georgia received their sentences this week. We'll, re- we'll recap all that's taken place since Ahmad Arbery's February 2020 murder. Those com- conversations are coming up. All that's just ahead. But first this, the future of the Atlanta City Jail is back on the front burner after the city in Fulton County reached a deal to house up to 700 county detainees. Raul Bali reports the deal still has to be approved by the city council and the county commission. Speaking to the Atlanta City Council, Mayor Andre Dickens addressed the controversy around the deal to use the city jail to relieve Fulton County Jail overcrowding. When confronted with hundreds of men sleeping on the floor throughout the hallways, the humanitarian response to that is to do something. Do something immediately. We are not in the jailing business. I do not want to be in the jailing business for long. Tiffany Roberts with the Southern Center for Human Rights pushes back on the idea that jail overcrowding is a new and urgent issue. What we have been proposing for years was that Fulton County courtroom actors, that means prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, including the Office of the Public Defender in large part, um, find ways to to execute consent bonds for people who have been given bonds but there are bonds too high for them to make. Opponents are also raising concerns about the proposed agreement itself, like whether it will be effective. Still, Fulton County Commissioner Natalie Hall pleaded with city council members to do the deal. The overcrowding is just only one part of it. The jail is old. It is horrific. And I don't care if somebody is in the jail, locked up, they should still be treated humanely. Robert says history is not on Fulton County's side. Fulton County has done this for decades. They fill the jail, they outsource uh, incarcerated people, a judge stops breathing down their neck, and then they fill the jail up again. So why would the mayor choose to try something that we have seen be ineffective and cause more harm rather than commit to repurposing the jail, which means 
the 50 people who are in Atlanta City Detention Center, finding a way to depopulate that facility, embracing the diversion center, and begin the, pro the process of repurposing. In the past, Mayor Dickens and other city politicians have proposed closing the city jail and turning it into a diversion center for people having mental health, substance abuse, and other issues. Raul Bally, WABE News, Atlanta City Hall. In other news, two recent federal pieces of legislation that will soon take effect will benefit Georgia. We'll first hear about the reconciliation bill the U.S. Senate passed over the weekend, which includes measures that Georgia's growing solar industry is pretty happy about. Molly Samuel has more. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 is the biggest investment in clean energy from the federal government in U.S. history. It's putting $370 billion towards energy and climate change. That includes a boost to solar manufacturing that had been pushed by Senator John Ossoff. The bill's going to mean a lot. Scott Moskowitz is the head of public affairs for solar panel manufacturer Q-Cells. They already have a giant manufacturing plant in North Georgia and have announced a $170 million expansion. He says this bill has the potential to improve supply chains, lower energy costs, and make it possible for them to expand even more. We and other companies like us are going to be creating a lot more jobs in Georgia and around the country if this bill passes. The measure now goes to the U.S. House, which could take it up by the end of this week. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And the $740 billion Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, among them some provisions championed heavily by Senator Raphael Warnock. The bill would allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices with pharmaceutical companies and limit out-of-pocket medication costs for seniors on Medicare Part D to $2,000 a year. It would extend pandemic subsidies that lower insurance premiums for people who buy their own insurance. And the bill includes a $35 cap on insulin costs for senior citizens, a cap Senator Raphael Warnock and other advocates wanted to extend to people with private health insurance, too. That provision didn't make it into the final package. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 now heads to the House. Jess Mador, WABE News. And the owner of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has acquired Axios Media in a deal worth a reported $525 million. Cox Enterprise says it plans to accelerate Axios expansion into more media markets, as we hear for, from Emil Moffitt. Axios first launched in 2017 as a national online news outlet. Three years later, it started branching into local news, including a presence in Atlanta, where it now offers a daily newsletter. Cox Enterprises became a lead investor in Axios last year, and Cox CEO Alex Taylor says the company looks forward to helping Axios continue to scale and grow. Axios is currently in 24 cities and hopes to expand to 30 markets by year's end. According to a news release, Axios co-founders will continue to lead the outlet's editorial and day-to-day -day business decisions. Emil Moffat, WABE News. And finally. Oh, it's wide. She's done it. Joy at last. Serena Williams has gained her first title and has become the first American-born Ah, that is from 1999. Serena Williams, very first WTA title, and now some 23 Grand Slam singles titles later. By the way, the most by any player in the Open era. Four Olympic medals, numerous doubles, mixed titles, all that. And get this, nearly an 85% winning percentage in singles matches throughout an extraordinary career. Well, Serena Williams has announced she's retiring after the U.S. Open, which gets underway later this month. Now, we should know, remember, 
When Tom Brady said he was retiring, then you know how that worked out, but you never know. Williams confirmed what she also revealed in a Vogue.com interview via social media saying, quote, there comes a time in life when we have to decide to move in a different direction. That time is always hard when you love something so much. My goodness, do I enjoy tennis, but now the countdown has begun. I have to focus on being a mom, my spiritual goals, and finally discovering a different but just exciting Serena. I'm going to relish these next few weeks, close quote. There's no argument. Serena Williams is the greatest tennis player of all time. Save your emails because I'm not going to argue with you. Now retiring after this year's U.S. Open. Closer Look returns in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. I guess that's our back-to-school music. I don't know if Martha Dalton likes that. I'll ask her. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, we know some school districts have been back in class for a few weeks, and others this week is the beginning of the new school year. And there have been some changes or additions to Georgia's new laws, including educators are faced with what some call, many call, vague provisions on how and what to teach. Well, there's a lot more to discuss as well. I'm joined now by WABE education reporter Martha Dalton. Welcome back, Martha. Thanks, Rose. It's great to be here. I've got to ask you this, because you were a former educator, but I say once an educator, always an educator. What was that first week like for you? You were in front of your, your little ones. Were you at fourth grade, sixth grade? What grade was that? Uh, second, fourth, and fifth. Right. Well, not all at the same time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, I always I always thought the first week of school was really fun. I was really excited about it. Like, And, and I have to say, even this year, um, you know, going on a school visit this week. And I, I started to get really excited about that the other day, too. So I for me, it's <laughs> exciting, but I think it's easier sort of as an adult to be excited about that stuff because you kind of know how it's going to go. Yeah. You know, and I think for kids, you know, they may not be as sure as how <laughs> how it's going to go. So they may not be quite as excited. But um, uh, but yeah, so that was that was always my uh my thought process was that I always look forward to it, but that's just me. I wonder how a little Rose Scott would have been in Martha Dalton's <laughs> class. Let's say. Let, let, oh, wow. That. <laughs> it's a whole nother segment. You that's know, a whole, right, that's a whole different show, I think. You know, Martha, the last couple of years, we've discussed the new school year. We always have to begin with COVID-19, but not so much. Mm-hmm. This time, because I think a lot of the focus has been, you've been reporting on this, that so many districts are still implementing what is referred to as the, I guess, the learning gap related to the pandemic. How, what are you hearing from districts and educators? How's that going? Well, let me start with uh, what you brought up about the COVID issue, mm-hmm. um, because it's not that districts aren't concerned. You know, last week, sure. two local districts, uh, Gwinnett and Clayton, saw their their infection rates go up. 
Uh, but what they can't do is they can't require students to wear masks because of a new law called the Unmask Georgia Students Act. Um, so instead, they required staff to wear masks, and it's you know suggested for students. But um, students have that option to to not wear any face coverings because mm -hmm. of the new law. So that that's sort of where um, the COVID. Um, the COVID preparations are a little bit tougher, I think, mm -hmm. this year for some districts. Um, but you mentioned uh, the learning loss issue, and that's certainly, I think, on the front of everyone's mind, every district. Mm -hmm. I mean, every district has seen it in their scores, you know, um, that even though there was a little bit of an improvement in some areas from year to year on the, the most recent standardized tests, uh, but the kids still aren't back up to where they were pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you're exactly right. I mean, I think that's uh, sort of on the forefront of districts' minds, you know, that that realization that we're not quite where we were. We mm -hmm. need to put resources toward, you know, really helping kids get back up, um, get sort of back on track and get back up on grade level, you know, mm -hmm. um, as as they get started this school year. Now, th th we know that there's been some many, as we call it, non-COVID-19 related issues, or perhaps, uh, as I, Rose Scott would say, some drama for some area <laughs> districts from last school year. So I'm going to let you take it from here. I'm going to name the county. Okay. It's kind of like name that county. Oh, okay. And, and Martha. Okay. Wilson. So let's and begin see with. see if I can. Um, okay. Got it. Let's let's play. I'm ready. Let's begin with DeKalb County, okay. Martha. Okay, in DeKalb, <laughs> of course, uh, we we all remember that DeKalb had a lot of building repair issues last year. Uh, students at several high schools posted videos that sort of went viral of their crumbling schools. And then the board had some trouble trying to allocate enough money toward fixing those problems. So they allocated some money toward fixing the most immediate problems. Um, but what ended up happening is that the Georgia Department of Education stepped in and hired someone essentially to oversee um, DeKalb's uh, building repair process. Mm -hmm. um, her name is Tansy Kilcrease. Uh, she retired from the Bibb County Schools near Macon last year. And so the DOE hired her up and, uh, and basically put her in charge of sort of overseeing the DeKalb process. And here's what she said about that um, shortly after she was hired. This is a collaboration, it's a partnership. It is our goal for them to be successful in ensuring that we have standard quality facilities for all of our students in DeKalb County. That's a good thing to so, hear, but. <laughs> well, certainly, right. And the, the board chair uh, uh, also agreed that she was glad that um, the state sent someone to help them. So. It seems like so far, you know, it is actually a partnership. The district uh, started on some immediate repairs over the summer. Um, but of course, you know, some are going to take a lot longer to fix. And Martha, just quickly for our listeners who may not be aware of, because they, the Cap County, have they made the interim superintendent permanent or what's the latest with that? Right. So she is still interim mm -hmm. right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, that that is a situation that has caused some tension, you know, on the board and also in the community. Um, it even caused some of the county commissioners to withdraw their endorsement mm. of a board member that's up for re-election. So it has caused um, some problems. But, you know, I have to say for her part, her name is Basan Tinsley, mm -hmm. Dr. Tinsley, who is the interim there. Um, you know, I really think she's tried to sort of 
rise above it and stay focused on the task at hand. Mm -hmm. And let's go over to Cobb County, Martha, for $200. Tell us about Cobb County. In Cobb, um, the the district, you know, recently was working on redesigning school logos. And unfortunately, one logo it came up with for Eastside Elementary School resembled a Nazi eagle. Mm -hmm. And now the district says it was meant to resemble an army colonel's eagle's wings Mm -hmm. uh, that they would wear. But the symbol definitely missed the mark. I mean, when you look side by side, uh, you can definitely Mm -hmm. see the resemblance. Um, So that logo is not being used. Um, One thing I want to point out about this incident, though, that I think was um, very interesting in the response of parents and students, um, you know, the district responded pretty quickly to this because it became um, a very big deal very fast. Um, And the parents and students responded in a way where they said, you know, we're glad that you you reacted really quickly to this. But what about black and brown students? Mm -hmm. And they um, they specifically pointed to students at Wheeler High School who have been trying, who've been lobbying the board for years for a name change because it's named after a Confederate general. And um, I thought that was a really interesting Mm -hmm. response because um, you know, they weren't just focused on their immediate needs, but, um, you know, said to the district, we appreciate this kind of response, but, you know, maybe maybe look at responding to different groups of students in the same way. And so I thought that was an interesting kind of outcome mm. of that whole incident. Martha, I don't know if you saw this, but just even earlier today, there was a report, it was about a survey in Texas, where they asked teachers just sort of about what they want to stay teaching, it found that 70% of Texas teachers, according to the survey, on the verge of quitting, they cited political attacks, the pandemic years, of, according to this, years of state neglect to blame for sinking morale, teacher shortages. That is also something that we you've been covering, we've been hearing about here in Georgia. What's the latest with that? And I know that Fayette County was also dealing with teacher shortages. Right, right. And it's interesting that uh, you mentioned that 70% mark because there was a similar survey in Georgia um, where 70% of teachers would not recommend the profession to other people. So it's interesting that, you know, those two, yeah, those two sort of high um, percentages are are out there. Um, But yeah, let me let me sort of um, back up and say that the teacher shortages are kind of connected to other shortages. For mm-hmm. example, um, the substitute shortages, a district like let's take DeKalb, which is short 300 teaching positions right now as school starts, they may choose to use long-term subs to fill those positions, right? But then that increases the need for substitutes. So then you you have you still have the substitute shortage. Now, some districts, uh, a lot of districts uh, have increased pay for substitute teachers mm-hmm. to try to draw more people in. So Cobb, for example, went from $89 a day to 189. Mm-hmm. Now they use stimulus money to do that. So um, when the money runs out next year, I'm not sure what they're going to do. But as you mentioned in Fayette County, uh, they started a program where bus drivers can substitute for teachers for a couple of hours a day. Now they don't they don't stay the whole day, uh, but they can fill in for a few hours here and there and the teachers can plan. And here's what bus driver Kathy Blackstone said about why she was willing to pitch in. It's a hard time for all of us with driving and I know it's a hard time for teachers. So if we can fill in a, a little spot, then that's why I wanna do this. 
Wow. And Martha, just to be clear, because I just got an email from a listener. Did she, I'm going to read it to all of our listeners. Did she say 300 teachers in DeKalb County? Well, keep in mind, DeKalb serves 100,000 students, sure. so it has thousands of teachers. So, um, so given that, 300 may not sound like it's a lot. Um, but um, again, yeah, those are positions that need to be filled somehow, whether it's with yeah. a long-term substitute or you know, whether it's with a certified teacher. Wow. So in Fayette County, so that, I mean, bus drivers willing to, to step in and, and do their part. And Martha, are you seeing this throughout the nation? I guess every, mostly every state is dealing with this. It, and most of this related it, to pandemic issues? Um, well, I can't say that it's mostly related to pandemic issues, but I can say that it is true. Teachers are retiring at a faster rate than um, new ones are coming out of training programs to replace them. So it is a nationwide problem, um, wow. you know, and, and there may be, you know, I know people, like you said, listeners are wonderful and they may write in and point this out. <laughs> there are po there are pockets where maybe, um, let's say, a smaller school district, um, say, is has I wouldn't say has too many teachers, but where it mm -hmm. is hard to find a teaching job. But that doesn't mean that um, that in general, uh, there's still not a shortage, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. You know, yeah. there's there's an overall shortage, although there may be pockets where, you know, um, it is harder to find teaching jobs. Wow. Uh, we have to talk about some of the, the Georgia laws regarding uh, education, public schools. Let's first deal with the divisive concepts. Depending on whom you ask, you get a different right. answer on what it means. And what it's right. not supposed to mean. So I'm going to let right. you take it from here. <laughs> okay. Well, so you're right. The critics of the law say some of the language is vague and it can be confusing. Now, what it does is it bans nine concepts. But what the critics say is that some of the concepts are phrased in a way that's really confusing. So, for example, some are straightforward. Like, um, you can't teach that one race is superior to another. Okay. Mm -hmm. Check that off the list. You know, most... Hopefully most teachers aren't doing that. Um, that seems pretty simple. But then others, like like this one, where you can't teach that the U.S. is fundamentally racist, a lot of critics say that's kind of vague because, A, what, is, what does that mean? Can mm -hmm. you not really, can you not give the root causes of slavery? Can you not talk about segregation and Jim Crow and sort of the root issues there? Um, you know, and they say it can be really confusing so I spoke with uh, Brock Boone, an attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and he said that kind of language, you know, it, it's really hard for them to advise teachers mm. on what they can and can't say. So here's here's what he said. What we are reminding teachers, though, is that they still have First Amendment rights from the United States Constitution, which, of course, because of the Supremacy Clause, the First Amendment does override Georgia state law. Hmm. So he he's saying, you know, you still have a right to free speech, um, you know, so if the law is confusing, kind of use your best judgment. Huh. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's right. It's it's a really tough call. And one thing I wanted to point out about this law is I know that it really sounds like it, it's targeting history and it mm -hmm. only applies to history, um, but that's not true. It applies to everything. So, um, you know, if you're in English class and some kind of historical event comes up or, in, you know, the issue of race comes up, mm -hmm. um, it also applies in English class. So, 
you know, it, it's not just like it's targeting history and is trying to somehow control the historical narrative. It's across the board. Martha, I want to go back to the teacher shortage for a moment because I'd have a listener that mm-hmm. just emailed and wants to know. Uh, the question is, uh, well, more of a statement. Uh, did Governor Kemp's, I guess, Governor, this is from a listener, I guess Governor Kemp's uh, teacher raise wasn't enough. What was that raise? Uh, can you just let folks know? Yeah, it's $5,000. Every teacher in Georgia uh, was supposed to get a raise of $5,000 um, per year. Um, certainly, I'm sure I'm sure that it helps. Um, you know, I don't think the governor could have predicted a pandemic a couple of years ago when he made that promise, mm-hmm. you know. And so a lot of things have come up, um, as you mentioned earlier, that have made teaching just really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And Martha, as we wrap up, I do want to uh, have an opportunity to talk about sports and then and, and the, the issue uh, and many folk, and again, this caused a lot of controversy as it relates to transgender youth uh, in, in our that want to play sports here in Georgia. For folks who are not aware, tell them what this legislation that was signed by Governor Kemp, what it, it what it says here. Well, right now, transgender girls can't compete, you know, on on school sports teams in mm-hmm. middle and high school. Um, now, like the divisive concepts bill that we were just talking about. The supporters of the bill couldn't really point to an incident mm-hmm. where, you know, something had happened in Georgia mm-hmm. and um, there had been some harm that was caused by including transgender girls in sports. But the way they frame it as, you know, being a preventive sort of measure. So they want to keep something from potentially mm-hmm. happening down the road. Um, that's how that's how they're framing it. Um, and it is, you know, it is in place mm-hmm. right now. Finally, Martha, I, I do want to, as we started the conversation, and you asked, talking about, you know, the, when you were a teacher, you went on a ride-along, a bus ride-along with some students, first-time riders. What a treat that was, huh? It was, definitely. And, you know, I have to say that Cobb does this bus ride-along every year for kindergartners and first graders. But because of COVID, some students haven't been taking the bus for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So this year, the ride along actually included the youngest kids and then also some older kids who were going to take the bus for the first time this year. So that was kind of cool. Wow, the little ones. And I, I, you asked the little one about what she loved about school. And I think she said her friends. Mm-hmm. Ah, mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. WABE education reporter Martha Dalton. As always, Martha, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. And again, I say this all the time, Sue. I'm, I'm glad you're our education reporter, but I know you're a pretty cool teacher as well. And I would have well, behaved you in your class. Me, Martha, I, I would have behaved in your class. I just want you to know. Listen, I, I, I sort of like the kids who don't behave all the time. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe we wouldn't have gotten along too well. I don't know. <laughs> well... There's a whole nother story there, but right. Thank you, Martha, as always. Thanks, Rose. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. The three men charged with federal hate crimes for killing Ahmaud Arbery in southeast Georgia received their sentences this week. Now, two of the three men received additional life sentences. We'll break the others. We'll break all this down in just a moment because there's quite a bit to recap from 2020 leading up to the federal hate crime sentences regarding the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And he's been with us along the way here. Let's bring in WABE legal analyst and defense attorney Paige Pate. Paige, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. 
It's great to be with you, Rose. Well, Paige, I feel like we've had so many conversations with this, but let's begin by going back for a little bit. February 23rd, 2020, Ahmaud Arbery went for a run through a suburb in Brunswick, Georgia. Now, I took some time for arrest because what would soon be revealed was this page, was all of this just behind the scenes in terms of prosecutors, it just from that beginning. Um, your thoughts on, well, we know what should have happened, but just from the moment when it was revealed that there were calls made from the district attorney's office to William McMichaels and all of this, just your thoughts on all of that before it took time for an arrest. Right. Well, I mean, Rose, I think ultimately the prosecutions were incredibly important. The sentences were severe and appropriate. But I think people miss the fact that the single most important thing to me about this case is what you're saying, the fact that they were prosecuted at all. And it was so close to that not happening here that it's almost incredible to think about. And in fact, it had to be divine intervention for there Mm -hmm. to be a prosecution of these individuals. Because once the incident happened, there was already a false narrative being put out Mm -hmm. um, somewhat by the police department, DA's office, and certainly from the McMichael side, that Ahmaud Arbery was caught breaking into a house. I mean, that's what his mother was told Mm -hmm. after he had been killed. And it, it was there was some investigative reporting here not much i mean at least they covered the case and and kind of vague about what happened but it was only when mcmichael's own attorney released that video to a local radio station that turned this case around and and it's really that does not normally happen Mm -hmm. Um, so this case came very close to being swept under the rug and Paige, we found out that Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney Jackie Johnson had placed 16 calls between phone numbers for Johnson and, and McMichael starting the, the February 23rd. I mean, yeah, this, were, go ahead. Yes, no, there were 16 calls. I don't know who placed which call. There was a total of, of 16 contacts. Again, not necessarily surprising given Greg McMichael's background as an investigator in Jackie Johnson's office. Obviously, he's in trouble. His son's in trouble. He's going to reach out to somebody he thinks can help. What is surprising, and I think totally inappropriate, is that she's talking to him about how she can help. And and the first thing they do is bring in um, a friendly uh, district attorney from the next county over to kind of whitewash the investigation, to issue this letter saying, hey, nothing to see here, no crime here at all. Uh, It's just really incredible that that would have happened and ended the case, but for the video that was released. And that video has upended the Mm -hmm. criminal justice system in Glenn County and for for the better. I mean, there have been so many changes as a result of that prosecution. Uh, We can go over those, but it, it is a much better situation now than it was when Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And Paige, let's let's focus on that video for a moment because without that, and and no one knows if I mean there's been speculation in terms of were they hoping this video was going to help what would then be the McMichaels and Bryant. I mean, you, surely you can't yes. speak for them, but no, no, yeah, I can't. Yeah. That was clear from the lawyer's view at the time. He thought because his clients thought, and there were still some people in that part of the community that thought this, because we heard one or two of them testify at the state court trial that they thought by looking at the video, 
hey, this is self-defense. This is going to help us get out of trouble once we have this video out there and people can see it. It just shows you how some people can completely see things differently based upon their perspective. And here we know what that perspective was, and that's ultimately what led to the federal hate crimes trial. And we should note, going back to 2020, we all know that year, of course, we're dealing with the pandemic. There's political issues, of course, everywhere. There's George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery some months earlier. There's calls for social justice. There's so many other instances that even in here with Rayshard Brooks, some of those involving law enforcement. Then we have this issue, which doesn't deal with law enforcement, but this whole, the whole optics around 2020 in itself too, just a, a, an incredible and extraordinary year as it relates to calls for racial justice. And again, profiling men of color, especially black men. Just, yes. uh, it's just like almost so much was happening in 2020. Yes, it was. And, and you're right. It wasn't law enforcement, but you did have former law enforcement. I mean, that was Greg McMichael's prior position. And you did have law enforcement involved in, I guess, what we could call a cover up or at least a, a different narrative, mm -hmm. um, you know, right after the incident occurred. But as I watched those other cases unfold across the country in the protests and the, uh, you know, civil um, rights protest, which, which is absolutely fine, but we also saw some violence in some communities, uh, mm -hmm. property damage. Not a bit of that went on in this little town here in Brunswick. And, and honestly, that surprised me because you certainly have different communities uh, in this town. You had people coming from outside of Brunswick to protest. All of that was done peacefully. And it did not in any way affect the trial, despite, as you will remember, those lawyers trying to bring it into the trial. You mm -hmm. know, no more black preachers coming into the courtroom mm -hmm. and this is all affecting us. Well, it didn't. Uh, and ultimately, I, I think we saw the right verdicts and, and we saw the right sentences and we saw the right reaction from the local community as it all developed. So then we know what happens in November. You and I talked about it along with Hank Klibanoff and so many other people. The verdicts come down. The verdicts are handed. And, and so we know what happens in, in November of last year. And then, of course, the next question is, okay, well, what about the, the, the federal hate crime here? And then some people saying, well, why even have a need for federal hate crime here? Because they've already been convicted. But, of course, you need to have that. And I'll let you take it from here, Paige, for our listeners who may not understand, okay, what good, do, and I'm not saying this, but when you have this additional federal hate crime for people that have been and for two of them that have been sentenced to life already, you know, why go through this? As some folks email me and asked. Well, it, in, in fact, it's unlikely any of these defendants will ever see the inside of a federal prison. Uh, the McMichaels will die in state prison unless their appeals are successful. Bryant will serve the majority of his sentence in state court, state prison, and his federal sentence is running concurrent with that at the same time that that occurs. So they may all end up serving their sentences in state prison and never going to federal prison. So people, I think, rightly question, why waste the resources on another trial if, if you're not going to add any time here? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to be any additional punishment. Well, the message was important. Uh, I think in prior administrations, you would not have seen this prosecution, especially once they were convicted in state court, because traditionally the DOJ would step back and wait. They would say, well, if these folks are going to be prosecuted locally and they're going to be convicted and the sentences are stiff enough, there's no need for federal involvement. 
This administration takes a very different approach with hate crimes cases. We're going to prosecute a hate crime if there is a hate crime. We don't care what may have happened in some other jurisdiction. It's not double jeopardy, as some people may have thought initially, mm -hmm. because these are two separate jurisdictions, state court and federal court, and also because a federal hate crime is a little bit different than murder. It's mm -hmm. not just killing a person. It's that evil racial intent behind the killing that makes it a federal crime. So there was a reason to do it. I think it was important to do it. And um, I think I, I've not heard anything in the community from people suggesting it should not have been done. Pace, let me ask you this, too, to educate our audience in terms of when it comes to when you are convicted of a federal crime, this is a federal hate crime, there is no parole. There is no, you, I mean, you have to serve all of the, your, your sentence, correct? Well, there's no parole, but if you receive a sentence of, let's say, 10 years, you'll generally serve about 85% of that because you do get some good time credit. You know, they have some carrot and stick approach, so mm -hmm. they want you to behave in prison. But if you get a life sentence, then there's no good time credit. You have to serve for your natural life. So it is correct that if you receive a life sentence in federal court, you don't get out. And there has been some talk that both the McMichaels, or at least one of them, would like to be moved to a different facility for fear of their life? Yeah, and, and that confused me from the very beginning because the federal judge, in this case or in any case, really doesn't have the authority to take someone out of state prison and send them to federal prison. What happened here is they were first charged in state court, they were prosecuted and sentenced in state court. The federal court borrowed them just as long as it took to prosecute them in federal court but then they have to return them to state court where they started off. So Judge Wood had no authority to say, okay, mm -hmm. you guys, you can serve your time in a cushy federal prison. Uh, she had to send them back to state prison. And But I, I do understand why. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgia prison system right now is a mess. It is understaffed. There is violence, inmate on inmate, inmate on guard, guard on inmate. And these guys... Mm -hmm. I, I can't think of a less popular person walking into a state prison in Georgia than the McMichaels or Roddy Bryan. Paige, I want to get your thoughts on this because from what we're hearing, Greg McMichael actually addressing Ahmaud Arbery's family, uh, quote, saying it was their loss was beyond description. I want to say this. I'm sure my words, and this is Greg McMichael, I'm sure my words mean very little to you, but I wanted to assure you I never wanted any of this to happen. There was no malice in my heart or my son's heart that day, close quote. Now, Travis McMichael did not address the court. His attorney did. We'll get to that in a moment. But what do you make of what Greg McMichael said there? Well, I understand why he said it. Um, I don't know that that's true, that there was no malice in his heart. I, I probably do believe he didn't start out expecting to kill Ahmaud Arbery. Um, I don't know if he knows what his son was thinking or wanting to do, uh, but that was the inevitable consequence of getting in the truck with guns and pursuing him for no valid reason. So to say he didn't intend to, for any of this to happen or all of this to happen or for the death of Ahmaud Arbery to occur, uh, that's ignoring the fact that everything he did set that in motion. And that was what the jury found both in state court and in federal court. Amy Lee Copeland, I believe, is the attorney for Travis McMichael and, and was actually hoping for a lighter sentence um, and actually brought up the George Floyd killing, um, eh, citing that uh, perhaps the sentence is considering client's age and health problems. 
which included a quote stroke and a depression. This is from Greg McMichael's attorney. I mean, and I know attorneys have to do what they have to do, but just bringing all that in into play at this point of this of this in, uh, this case, Paige, your thoughts on that? Well, I think you have to do that. Um, part of the sentencing analysis in federal court are these other factors: age, health. Um, conditions of confinement. So if you're a defense lawyer and you don't argue those things, well, you're being ineffective. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got to do the best job you can for your client. You can't dispute what happened. And I don't think the lawyers did that here, but you, you have to do the best you can to, to try to, to minimize the exposure for your client. But again, none of that really mattered at mm -hmm. the end of the day, uh, not to judge Wood, but also practically, because even if judge Wood had given them time served in federal court, they're going back to state prison to spend the rest of their natural lives there. So uh, at the end of the day, the sentence is severe and doubly so now because they have one in both state and federal court. Paige, is it likely that the McMichaels and Bryant could be separated? We understand that the attorney for Travis McMichael told the court that the client has re her client is receiving hundreds of threats that he will be killed as soon as he arrives in state prison, and that his photo has been circulated there on illegal phones. Again, that's a whole nother show when we talk about issues dealing with Georgia's um, prisons. Saying, quote, I'm concerned, Your Honor, that my client effectively faces a backdoor death penalty. I mean, is the court mandated to do something here? No. No, and, and the, a federal judge can't do anything about that. I just want to make that clear. The only way these folks get out of state prison is if the Department of Corrections in Georgia says we don't want them. That is a possibility. Uh, the Department of Corrections can say, look, it, it, you know, having to deal with you folks here, the security requirements, uh, we just rather not. And they can then release them to the custody of the U.S. Marshals, who will then take them to federal prison because they have this federal hold on them right now. So they could get what they wanted. Um, if they have so much uh, of an issue in state court that the people, I'm not state court, but state prison, mm -hmm. that the prison authorities say, we just don't want you. We're going to let you go. So, so the far state they here. have said that. Yeah. So far they've said we, we're not going to do that. State prison authorities said we're not. We're going to keep them. We're going to hold them. They're going to serve their sentence. But they could release them into federal custody. But it's going to be up to DOC in Georgia. Is it likely that the McMichaels and, and Bryant might be in the same facility or it's unlikely? That's hard to say. Uh, there's not really a, a good way of designating custody status in, in the Department of Corrections right now. Everybody first goes to a diagnostic prison, mm -hmm. then they do basic health checks and things like that, security classifications, and then they send you out based upon where they have space. In this case, there's no need to keep them apart as far as one's cooperating or a snitch against mm -hmm. the other. So uh, I think they're going to have a real tough time in state prison. But I don't know that it's going to be because of violent attacks. I think they will be segregated individually, probably in a holding cell for 23 hours a day, um, because that's the only way to keep them away from other inmates. And, and even then, mm. that might not work. Paige, when you look back, and, and you and I have talked about so many landmark, historic, you know, cases here, you know, I don't know what this, what the history books will say in terms of the precedent that's been set here as relates to not only federal hate crimes, but just this nation and the legal system. And you know, and we've talked about it before as well, so many other 
killings, murders that didn't even make it to trial. We can go way, we can go way, way, we can go centuries back, okay? But sure. what will this this case, this Ahmaud Arbery case, what will it set in terms of the future here? Does it change? Will it change anything? I think the reaction to the prosecution shows that things have changed, at least in this particular community, Glenn County, Brunswick, Georgia, um, because what you did not hear um, in, in this community was any pushback on mm -hmm. the idea of prosecuting the McMichaels or the sentences that they received. Um, you know, we talked about the video. I think obviously a number of cases we can mention here would never have been brought, but mm -hmm. for video evidence. And, and that has changed the way these cases are prosecuted now because people can see, and it's hard to get around that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in the past, a detective could write up whatever he wanted to write up about how it went down and nobody could question that effectively. Mm -hmm. And the person who was arrested may have a totally different story. The report may be completely wrong, but with no other evidence, the juries would take the de detective or the cop's word for it. Now they get to watch what actually happened. And that's, that's dramatically different. And it's just hard to argue with that. No matter what your bias is, uh, no matter how you feel about certain individuals or defendants, you can't ignore what's on a videotape. So that has dramatically changed the way things are. And pay something else that changed. We saw that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, he signed a repeal of this. And folks should understand this. This was going back to 1863, a citizen's arrest law. 1863. Yeah. And not a great time here uh, in 1863. No. Um, you know, th there was there there was and, and remains a, a very narrow reason for a citizen's arrest law. You know, the, the detective at the Walmart who sees someone shoplifting, can we just detain him until the police show up? You know, that's a legitimate need for it. That can continue now, even after the citizen's arrest statute was repealed. But the way it had been written and the way it was, as you mentioned, for uh, generations is that basically anyone can say, hey, I, I think this guy's committing some crime. I'm going to chase him down. And if he tries to struggle, I can kill mm -hmm. him. Well, you know, yeah. again, the video made that dramatically untrue and, and put it in a way that people are just not willing to accept that anymore. Paige, if you were in a law school, and I, I, I still think at some point in your career you're going to do this. That's just me. I think you'd be a wonderful professor. Um, Thank you. <laughs> if you're, you're teaching about this case, 10 years from now, what are you telling your students? What do you oh want to hit gosh, on? There, yeah. There's so much here. Uh, everything from the way the case was investigated to the charges that were um, ultimately decided on both in state and federal court. But I think the lesson here for young lawyers and law students would be how the case was tried in state court. I mean, the, the prosecutors from Cobb County who came down and presented the case, they stayed away from that racial evidence, the, the, the bias, the prejudice. I thought they were crazy for doing that. Mm -hmm. it turned out to be a great strategy. Um, they focused on what they knew they could prove, and that was done very well. The defense, on the other hand, I think went too far in one direction and lost the case, perhaps, because of appeals to that same racism that the mm -hmm. state ignored. You remember the dirty toenails mm -hmm. and, and just, just unnecessary um, commentary, which ultimately I don't think helped their case. So it's a great case as far as trial tactics, a great case as far as 
diligent investigation, a great case to show what public attention can mean in the prosecution of a criminal case. Um, so many lessons to learn from this. So in the state case, not focusing so much on racism as the driving factor because you know that there's going to be federal hate crime charges here. You focused on the facts for the state portion and then for the federal, you're saying, because it's a hate crime, so you have to show that they were motivated by race? That's right. That's right. And, and I think one of the reasons they did not do that in the state case is because the prosecutor was legitimately concerned about, what if I've got one person on this jury who's a racist? You know, what if I've got one person who's going to think I'm going too far by calling these people racist, and they're going to hang up the jury, and I'm going to get a mistrial? So I, I'm not I'm going to leave that outside the courtroom. I'm just going to focus on this video and the fact that Ahmaud Arbery hadn't done anything wrong and that they killed him. And it turned out that was a great strategy. I do want to play a clip here. This is from yesterday. This is Ahmaud's Arbery's mother. And she's talking. She has a message for the Department of Justice. If we have that clip ready, we'll take a listen to it. I now want to address the members of the DOJ. I'm very thankful that you guys bought these charges of hate crime. But back on January the 31st, you guys accepted a plea deal with these three murderers who took my son's life. Marcus and two of Ahmaud's aunties stood before the courts and, and begged the judge not to, to take a plea deal that the DOJ that the, that the DOJ went before the judge and asked them to take a plea deal with these guys. That's a mother. Attorney Ben Crump just called these women, just called her name Christian Clark. As I traveled to Brunswick on that Sunday afternoon, I spoke to Christian Clark and the, and the lead attorney Tara Lyons begging them to please not take this plea deal. They ignored, they ignored my cry. I begged them. Even after the family stood before the judge and asked them, asked the judge to not take this plea deal, the lead prosecutor, Tara Lyons, stood up and ask the judge to ignore the family's cry. Oh, justice. That's not, that's not justice for Ahmad. What we got today, we would have gotten today if it wasn't for the fight that the family put up on January the 31st. What the DOJ did today, they was made to do today. It wasn't because what they wanted to do. And, and Paige, we cannot end this conversation without talking about Wanda Cooper-Jones, Ahmaud Arbery's mother, the family, pushing, pushing for the justice through the, in their lens of what needed to happen for Ahmaud. I'll let you end with that in terms of talking about, and I can't even imagine, you know, as a, as a mother dealing with this, but just the determination and the perseverance from Wanda Cooper-Jones and her family throughout all of this. You're absolutely right. And when I said the case would never have been brought but for the video, I left out 
uh, his family. And I think it's absolutely true that the case would have never been brought without the video and the family, because it wasn't just about this, um, you know, possible plea agreement that they had offered. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all the way through the case from the very beginning. Um, Wanda Cooper Jones did not believe what they were telling her about mm -hmm. her son, about what had happened, and she kept pushing for answers. They would appoint a new DA. She would not be satisfied with that DA because she knew that that person wouldn't be objective. And so every time there was an obstacle, she and the rest of the family overcame it. And they did it without being hostile uh, to law enforcement or the prosecutors or the judges. Um, certainly here there was a disagreement and still is obviously with the Department of Justice for that plea agreement. But everyone on both sides, and there really was no other side, mm -hmm. but what was the, the trial took place. It was a fair trial, both state and federal court. I can address a bit about the plea offer. Everybody seems to think justice was willing to go ahead and let them go to state uh, federal prison. It's not so. I think the prosecutors knew that couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. All they were doing was going to recommend to the state authorities to let them go into federal mm -hmm. prison. So I don't think that would have happened anyway. Mm -hmm. And I understand the prosecutor saying, look, if we're going to get 30 years out of them in federal court and they've got life sentences already in state court, let's save a trial. Because back then we didn't know mm -hmm. that they would be convicted at a federal hate crimes right. trial. You certainly could add another hung jury. Um, but now, of course, it certainly seems like the right decision was what Judge Wood did and reject those plea agreements and let the case go to trial and let justice be done. WABE legal analyst and defense attorney, Paige Pate. Paige, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate you covering this very important case. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for today was Shelly Canavy. Reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, bros at wabe.org. And if you miss any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally will cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.